0: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm absolutely uncertain whether this microphone is working or not, but oh, I think it is. I think I can hear a sort of echo surrounding my voice. Good. Um, I'm John King. I, I represent the Society for Algerian Studies, which has been instrumental in arranging this meeting. Um, this will probably be the last of our series of meetings for this academic year. And we will see you in some form or other in the autumn. Um, um, can I boringly ask you to turn your phones off, which I'm absolutely certain you already have done. Um, we'll model it, appropriate it, it, behavior. It, it, <laughs> it says here, if you want to tweet about the event, the, the hashtag is hash LSE Noble, um, which... Um, which uh, seems to be becoming less fashionable than it was once upon a time. But if you feel compelled to join President Trump on social media, please do. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll go for about 40 minutes or 45 minutes and then we'll have questions, I, I would imagine, or less, or however, whatever Andrew feels like doing. Um, speakers, we have. Um, Not one but two former ambassadors to Algeria here this evening. Um, His Excellency William Sinton, who is the president of the Society for Algerian Studies, um, served in Algeria around the turn of the millennium. And His Excellency Andrew Noble has just stood down from Algeria last year, and his impressions of that excellent country are very fresh in his mind. So I will that's an introduction. I will now hand over to Bill, who's actually going to chair the academic part of the meeting proper. <laughs> yes. that, that was the, the, the introduction, the meeting improper.
1: Well, I'm not at all sure I'm qualified to chair the academic part but nevertheless, uh, here it goes. Um, as John says, I'm Bill Sinton. I'm the honorary president of the Society for Algerian Studies. And uh, it's normally John who chairs these gatherings. And uh, John uh, styles himself modestly as the assistant secretary of the society. In reality, he is, it's, uh, he has been its inspiration and its mainstay and it's his his contacts, his commitment, his enthusiasm which have uh, brought about the society's programme of activities over the years and sustained it and without whom, for example, uh, this evening's event would not be taking place. Well, I'm
0: just going to interrupt you for a second uh, just to
1: say we really
0: can't pass without saying but the society was founded by Dr Hugh Roberts, who's now at Tufts University in Boston, yeah. and he got it up and running, and, um, and I was uh, um, privileged to be one of a group who, who grabbed the baton from him um, around
1: 15, 16 years ago. And John has faithfully carried that baton ever since, as I was suggesting. So I'd like to take this opportunity... <laughs> on behalf of the Society, on behalf of the Middle East Centre, on behalf of everybody here this evening, and indeed of all those who see the podcast afterwards, to thank John King for all he has done for the Society over the years. Thank you. Um, Now, I first went to Algiers in the early 1980s, as the commercial attache of the British Embassy. In those days, not many people in Britain knew much about Algeria. And I have to admit that when I left four years later, I still did not really know what made Algeria tick. But at least I knew more about what the relevant questions were. Um, When I returned 15 years later, as ambassador, I found, this was around the year 2000, I found um, Algeria much the same in some ways, but completely different in other ways. And I suppose that this pattern of continuity and change uh, still applies. But we'll hear an update on that uh, quite soon. Now, our speaker uh, this afternoon is Andrew Noble, British ambassador in Algiers until last October. Andrew has enjoyed a, a, a distinguished and a very diplomatic career so far, including postings in Romania, in West Germany, in South Africa, in United Germany, as well as uh, policy-making jobs in the Foreign Office in London. He went to Algeria as ambassador in in 2014, I believe, and um, has had a busy few years, heralded by the visit of David Cameron in 2013, which was, I think, the first to Algeria by a British Prime Minister.
2: Well, you've taken one of my best stories there.
1: Oh, sorry, (laughs) but But you can expand on it. Um, And there is no doubt that Algero-British relations um, have a much higher profile nowadays than they did in my time. Um, So we now look forward to hearing Andrew's impressions, and I look forward perhaps to him revealing what he's doing now as well. Um, at the end, whenever that is, we will have, as John King has said, questions and answers from the audience. Uh,
2: Andrew, you have the floor. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, John. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Sandra, for <coughs> making all the arrangements for, for us to be here tonight. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for, for coming to listen to what is uh, billed correctly and deferentially as impressions. Um, these are my views. Uh, They're my impressions gathered over about three and a half years from June 2014 to November 2017. Um, And you may find that you would disagree with some of the things I say, or all of it, Um, or you may agree with all of it. Um, But uh, they're only my views. Uh, They're not in any uh, way a reflection of government policy. Um, uh, I'm not speaking here for the government. If I may turn, first of all, to the question of British Prime Minister's visiting Algeria, I once said exactly the same as you. And that was wrong. And, and somebody um, <laughs> said to me, oh, no, they're not, because Winston Churchill came,
1: <laughs> oh.
2: um, to which I pointed out that I was talking about independent Algeria yeah. as a state, and therefore it was David Cameron. And um, my Algerian interlocutor in the audience pointed out that he was talking about eternal Algeria. Um, and... <laughs> And so I think definitional problems necessarily arise, Um, but I think it is right to see David Cameron as the the first representative of a a modern British government uh, visiting Algeria since 1962, um, and with tremendous uh, impact on the relationship. Um, I've I've sort of excused myself away. This is a private, a private reflection. I'm also not a political scientist. Um, so I And my only other time in LSE before was here to listen to LSE political scientists. As a young diplomat, I came for an international affairs course uh, and was astonished um, in a foreign office at that stage that did very little training um, how much there was to learn that um, they'd allowed me to get off out of the starting blocks and do diplomacy without ever knowing. So LSE was... ...right at the very start, a very important um, uh, adjunct to my training. Um, And I promise I'm not going to give you anything remotely academic uh, this evening. It will be pragmatic and personal. Um, When I was preparing to go to Algeria about four years ago... ...the only real conclusion I came to uh, was that not many people seem to agree about anything uh, about Algeria... ...but they seem to feel quite passionately about it, if, of course they had heard of it. Um, And even even when I left in 2017, I'm afraid that there is still a great um, temptation for people to say, where where are you posted? Algeria? Nigeria? No, Algeria. Um, You then point out that Algeria and Nigeria are actually very close to each other uh, uh, across the southern Sahara, and by that stage you've completely lost them in in detail that they never wish to know about. Thank you very much. I thought rather boringly I m- might explain what a diplomat does because it's, it's a question I'm asked absolutely everywhere. So instead of saying what a diplomat does, I thought I might tell you what a diplomat did. Um, and essentially, I was in Algeria to talk to people uh, and I talked to as many people as I possibly could. Um, and I, I, as I say, boringly, I apologise, I have written down who I spoke to um, And actually, I was quite surprised uh, what I'd managed to do at the end of three and a half years. I still, I don't think I've found the holy grail by any manner of means, but I've had a lot of of discussions, and I think for my personal satisfaction, I've debunked quite a bit. Um, But the sort of things that I did, I met the president twice, Um, I met all three prime ministers who were in office whilst I was there, including talking to two of them when they were not prime ministers, which is... Uh, an interesting sidelight on what they told you when they were prime minister um, or in one case before they were prime minister Um, I met uh, in three and a half years I met countless different ministers of finance and ministers of energy Um, and I met virtually every other cabinet minister and many of them many times um, and my priority list is foreign affairs, industry, telecoms, energy, interior, communications, education, religious affairs tourism public works transport and environment um, you know those are people that I would reckon that I had quite a good relationship with um, I I had one talk with the vice Minister of defense um, but I knew the head of external intelligence reasonably well um, I talked to lots of other senior people in the Ministry of Defense um, and to several high-ranking operational soldiers um, I knew quite well the senior figures in the prisons and the police service. Um, I knew the heads of all the main political parties, main journalists, university figures, a huge range of NGOs. And w- one of the criticisms you, you hear of Algeria is about the absence of a, of a third sector. Well, actually, uh, there's an awful lot of them already. Um, and in very active and very uh, proud to speak up in fields for, ranging from human rights right through to economic development. Um, I also knew all of the international agencies uh, who were working on the ground in Algeria and uh, are doing some really very important work. And um, One of the reasons I wanted to spell that out is one of the things that I did debunk very early was that I wasn't prepared for the embassy to talk about le pouvoir at all um, because it, it always struck me that every discussion that... Uh, resorted to using Le Pouvoir was a discussion uh, led by somebody who wasn't trying to find things out. Le Pouvoir strikes me as monolithic, unknowable, um, unpersonable, um, and and just unattainable. And if you want to say Algeria's o- done over there by uh, a series of blokes of whom we know nothing, fine, but you'll never understand it. I think if you if you sort of plunge into it, you can you can actually meet the people who, if you knew who they were, would be in Le Pouvoir. Um, and, and that was one of, one of the main things that I wanted to, to do. Thanks to uh, an excellent embassy team, some of whom are in the room tonight, um, we were able also to, to hoover up all of the um, public expressions of what was happening in Algeria through the media, through social media, um, in uh, as many languages as we were able to, to do, um, I talked to extensively to Algerian and to British businessmen. Um, I, made 20, I, I visited twenty seven of the forty eight lay at um, because uh, as we know, those of us who don 't come from London, uh, the views of a capital city are never expressive of the reality of the country um, so I, I visited twenty seven and I transited <coughs> many others. Um, And I met Algerians of all varieties. Um, Almost everybody I met would say that they were Algerian and Muslim. But they had extra things as well. And just some of the tags that I uh, uh, heard frequently, um, I met many Arabs, obviously. Um, I met many Berbers. I met a, a very few number of Jews. Um, I met some Christians. I met Tuaregs, Kabil, Shawi. Very few atheists. I mean, the people of no religion are um, uh, very rare, I think. I met some Algerian gays. I met lots of families of revolutionary stock. And I met lots of ordinary people. Um, And I have to say, I had a wonderful time. Um, One of the earliest impressions... Um, uh, that, that you get in Algeria, uh, I don't know, I'm, I apologise if you all know Algeria backwards, but I'd just like to put on record, I think Algerian people are wonderful. Warm, welcoming, open, uh, the friendliest people I could have hoped to work with. Um, and I, I can make one of, one of those Algerian people blush because my, uh, my, sainti- my saintly Arabic teacher from Annaba is in the room as well. Um, And that was a very, uh, I learned a little bit of Arabic in the Foreign Office Language Center before I I went, and uh, Uridah was a a very good indicator of the warmth and the friendliness that I was going to experience for the next three and a half years. Um, My motivation for making this speech, which isn't the sort of speech that diplomats normally do, we make speeches all the time, but it's usually about things that we know. Um, and uh, I only have impressions I don't know Algeria. Um, uh, it's very rare that we sort of put ourselves out there and actually talk about somebody else's country. Uh, so why did I want to do it? Well, partly it is for, that, for the reason that Algeria is just not known about in the UK as adequately as it should be. Um, it's also because it's not... Easily knowable uh, from uh, from a foreign country. Uh, certainly, the the journalism on uh, Algeria, I think, is exceptionally weak. Um, and the journalism that is written from foreign capitals uh, tends to be a better uh, impression of the stereotypical views of the capital from which it's written than anything authoritative about Algeria. Um, and That's only an impression from three and a half years, but I saw very little. I did see some things that were worth reading, but very little. Um, It's it's not understood well as a country, um, and I think partly the Algerian government and and what they will admit in private is a a policy of uh, opacity um, uh, is one of the reasons that it is so difficult to understand. Um, But I think Algeria's success uh, would be enhanced if it were better understood. Um, but also and this brings us back to David Cameron's visit uh, a little um, I have a very strong sense that British success um, overlaps very uh, broadly with Algerian success Um, whether we're looking at uh, security uh, uh, priorities or prosperity or indeed questions of uh, democratic and and social values Um, I was there unavowedly for the promotion, the protection of British interests. Uh, But I felt all of the time that what was successful for Britain was also uh, implicit in success for Algeria. Now, one of the disappointing things that you will find about this speech is that I'm going to leave out all the things that you're interested in. Um, in uh, In the confidence that you'll ask me questions about them. Um, but there's a list of, of, of topics which are important and are very interesting and sometimes scurrilous. And, but I think they tend to absorb the time and the capacity uh, of, of a lot of discussion and coverage about Algeria. So I'm going to leave them out. So I'm not going to talk about this, – this, this. I mean, this, this is a kiss of death. You know. I'm not going to talk about the president, security, corruption – Uh, the Kabyle or the French. Um, But I suspect, uh, as as you say, exactly. What is left, you say? (laughs) Well, what is left? Well, what is left are actually the things that really matter. And so rarely get adequate focus. Um, And I will give you, and I'm not going to talk at great length about anything, you'll be happy to know, um, because I think it would be much more interesting if we talk about what you're interested in. But the the headings that I will say a little bit about are National Reconciliation After 2000, uh, about national economic development and political change since 1962, uh, about how Algeria has coped with the oil price shock since 2014, um, and about the extent of opportunity in Algeria. Some other people might have described that as things that Algeria is really bad at, but I think you know you can approach uh, Algeria w- with a glass half full or a half empty mentality, and I think the people who go about it with a glass half full mentality are probably not looking for mutual success. I think they're looking for, for other things. Um, I regard it I think it's important to focus on what the remaining opportunities in Algeria are. Um, there are lots of icebergs on the route to Algeria, the only, only iceberg filled part of the Mediterranean uh, with, with small blocks of ice which actually bar your way um, uh, one of them I think uh, is a complete divergence between Algerians in Algeria and all of the rest of us outside Algeria in the way that we think about 1991, 1992 and I think it's so far in the past that nobody is particularly prior- prioritising it for discussion, but I think it fundamentally alters your starting point when you look at Algeria. Um, I've mentioned uh, the opacity of the government, which is intended. I've mentioned already uh, people defaulting to the idea of le pouvoir. Um, And I think there's an awful lot of sophistry uh, around Algeria, um, uh, where people are led by what I already think and what I therefore wish to prove. And I I think one of the things that I have heard on a couple of occasions is about demonstrations. Um, And very often you hear complaints about demonstrations are not allowed. And then when demonstrations take place, the people who are reminding you that demonstrations aren't allowed say, say, look, told you, you know, it's so bad that even despite not being allowed to demonstrate, they're demonstrating. Um, And I think you hear that sort of negativity about Algeria very frequently. Let me turn to my sort of, I think, five big topics and just give a few pointers um, uh, as to what my impressions were after three and a half years. National reconciliation post-2000, I think, is probably uh, one of the Algerian products that needs to be understood better uh, by more people in more parts of the world. Um, If you look around the. Muslim world, uh, conflict, uh, conflict is all around, um, and a lot of the most difficult conflicts where people are finding it difficult to come up with solutions. I think the fact that since 1999-2000, whenever you want to to date it from, you can date it from 1995, I think the, the peace process in Algeria is quite an exceptional phenomenon. Not least because it's worked, and Algeria is no longer the, uh, the, 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 the the place where terrorism is out of control, impacting on the lives of all of the population. And it clearly was in the 1990s. And for uh, f- for the Brits in the audience, I think it's just worth reminding ourselves of how bad it was. I totted up the the figures for Northern Ireland deaths or Northern Ireland-related terrorism deaths in the United Kingdom over the period 1969 to 2010, which I I think 2010 is the last time um, there were uh, significant casualties. In that period, related to Northern Irish terrorism, there were 87 deaths a year. And... We all remember how obsessed we were by Northern Irish terrorism. It was one of the biggest questions for the government for a very long time. By comparison, if you take the lowest estimate of deaths that you hear uh, in Algeria in in the 1990s, i.e. a figure of about 60,000, that works out as a death rate of 16 deaths a day, every day, for 10 years. it was a... Uh, well, I, don't, I won't go in for any hyperbolic language because I think most of you know how bad it was. But it stopped. And it has stopped dependably. And it has stopped through a process, actually, that Algerians led for themselves um, and has permitted the economic development of the country to continue um, producing a radical transformation of life for... Algerians throughout the country. Um, It's within Algeria, within Algeria, it is largely uncontroversial. Um, It is controversial outside the country. But to my mind, one of my previous postings in South Africa was from 1994 in South Africa when the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission came about, which was a brilliant device ...for South Africa, but an explicitly Christian model of national reconciliation. You know, in return for atonement for your sins, you got, you got forgiveness from the victim. Um, I think what Algeria has done, uh, and it's not well understood... ...and part of the success the Algerian system, I think, thinks... ...is that it's not well known about, it's not plastered over newspapers. It was done very much in private... Um, but it has held and it has largely kept people bound within it for something going on for 20 years. I think that sense of success on national reconciliation within Algeria is one of the things that drives the Algerian government in its um, devotion to seeking peace in Mali, um, where I was was there for quite a successful negotiation uh, the implementation of the peace deal in Mali is clearly much more complicated, but it also motivates the Algerian government in its search for peace in Libya. I think at the same time as that national reconciliation was uh, producing roots and getting a, a really firm hold, um, there's a political and judicial advance in the country which is really not well documented, um, and actually a direction in it, a liberal direction of travel. not, not It's not Luxembourg or Sweden, um, but a country which is pulled between, still actively pulled between Islamic extremism and liberal secular values. You know, Algeria encompasses all of that. The direction of travel, I would say, is substantially a liberal one. Um, prison reform is very well advanced. Um, I think Algeria is a country where Algerians do not fear the police. I've seen many more people being very rude to the police on the streets of Algeria uh, than uh, thinking, oh my God, if I say something to what will be the outcome for my family? And having lived in Ceausescu's Romania uh, for three years, I know what a paranoid police state looks like. I frankly did not see that uh, in Algeria. Um, The police are becoming increasingly exposed and measured by human rights disciplines and the the Human Rights Centre opened in the police headquarters last September was a very important step forward and one which is being um, implemented with some confidence and international participation. Um, The dismantling of... The, intellig- uh, no, the, the, the large-scale reform of the intelligence services, I think, w- is one of the biggest steps that took place whilst I was there. Um, it was heralded in September 2014 by an announcement in the papers that got almost no uh, uh, um, uh, wider, effect, uh, wider recognition or uh, effect about the removal of the DRS from all of the central government ministries. Um, and if you weren't reading newspapers that day, you would have missed—you'd missed you'd miss that, uh, because I don't think it was ever referred to again publicly. Um, it was only when a British company, who had been involved in uh, Algeria for many years, uh, came to see me about uh, nine months later, and they rather unusually uh, described to me what the difference was in the ministry with which they dealt principally between having a, a ministry with DRS in at the centre involved including on procurement decisions and what it was like when the DRS were removed. I mean, that at the time, I think, was a fairly significant step. Um, But what what they went on to do in terms of uh, uh, reforming the DRS out of existence and creation of three separate intelligence agencies and lots of underpinning changes, which I'm afraid I can't talk about, um, uh, I think is, is a really important step, which is very difficult to know about in public because by their very nature, intelligence agencies operate in secret. Um, But my impression is that it was a very big step forward. And, of course, part of what is very visible today, if those of you who have known Algeria for much longer than I have, um, you don't need to think back a very long time for Algeria to have been run by an intelligence military system. Um, and you know, people will ask, did ask questions. I don't think I've heard it very recently about whether President Bouteflika is merely a smokescreen for pouvoir or whether he's the puppet of the military. Well, you know, gosh, you know, if that, I can see why that used to be a question. I just don't think it is anymore. And what you read about is, uh, in some uh, journalism, is uh, President Bouteflika having a highly centralised. Uh, system of control uh, uh, under him. Um, nobody pointing out that if you have got a civil, civilian presidency with a high degree of centralised power, that's very different to having a military which was in charge of everything. Um, so I think you know, if you look at the big changes over a long period in Algeria, that is one which is continuing. Um, I said I wouldn't talk about President Bouteflika, but I, I have to add... That I think his personal role on the advancement of women's rights is very significant uh, in, in Algeria. Um, um, I'll move on to economic development since 1962, um, and I think I think for those of us who. Uh, Well, I was too young in 1962. You, you probably. I was too young too. uh, (laughs) I think we were all too young in 1962 to remember (laughs) directly what happened. Um, I think it's uh, it's it's astonishing, uh, still deeply moving, and very painful to read about uh, what what went on up to 1962 uh, uh, and the independence war and the. The appalling suffering and impact, but I think the impact of the French departure is also uh, something that, you actually, in a mixed audience, the Brits at least need reminding that you know when the French left, actually, the managerial class went, because nobody, uh, nobody had been prepared to take over the leadership of a country. And um, one of the oddest things—I don't know if you ever had it, Bill—but um, I-, I was quite regularly. Uh, had, had people come t- to me to say oh, if only we'd had the British colonial a- administration now I, I've never heard that said in a commonwealth country um, and, and it's actually not one of the things as a British diplomat that you're trained to respond to with anything other than uh, simple astonishment, well you know, what do you mean you wish you'd had British colonial administration and the description of what was different in an African country being prepared for uh, independence Uh, compared to a, well, we'll fight a bitter war and then slash and burn as we leave and burn all our houses down and leave you without doctors, lecturers, a a working civil service or anything. Um, uh, I mean, I think we just, the Brits need to be reminded of what sort of abject state Algeria was in in 1962. Having admittedly won its independence, having strengthened its sense of nationhood, which continues in my experience, to this day and is one of Algeria's inherent strengths, uh, which isn't shared necessarily with other North African countries. Um, But it was in a very bad state. And where does Algeria find itself today? Um, I mean, I I, I suspect you could find yourself in a conversation with people who say, well, nothing ever changes in Algeria. (laughs) It's all the same. Yeah, okay, it's all the same, except Algeria is top of the UN Development Programme's League for Human Development Growth, or human development uh, in the whole of continental Africa. Um, and this is a, it's an index that's looking at education, health, water supply, housing, transport infrastructure, and many other areas of life. Algeria has gone from where it was in 1962, with I think 300 doctors for the whole country, to top in the whole of continental Africa. And this is a country with a large population, a vast territory, and despite all of that, it has managed to pull itself up by its bootstraps and develop its people. That is a huge achievement. I think whatever you think about Algeria, from whichever perspective you come, you just have to look at the empirical evidence and... Uh, every every single British visitor who came to see me in the residence in Algiers and they were new to Algeria the first two or three sentences followed exactly the same pattern they weren't doing Algeria, Nigeria that sort of rubbish but what they were saying every single one of them was oh it's a lot different to what I expected and, and I think the, the difference starts as the aircraft door opens and you walk onto a bridge in an airport looking pretty much like any other airport anywhere in the world and already it's different to what you expected because if you've never been to Algeria and you've never seen any coverage of it and you've probably never seen any current pictures of Algeria there is a historic image which persists and we're, we've all been caught up in that. But lo and behold, you then move into Algeria, into Algiers, and the development, the modernity, they, they, it's pretty much like many other places, really hits you. But that's a big positive uh, assault on what you already, on what you always thought. Uh, and actually, a lot of people have. Uh, make an assumption of incompetence about Algeria. Um, But you have to sort of weigh up what the difference has been in what sort of timescale. It wasn't until I met a a French water engineer, not necessarily the sort of contact I'm looking for generally, but I uh, was uh, standing at one of the riding clubs in Algiers talking to a French water engineer, said, you know, eight years ago it wasn't like this. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, there wasn't a a dependable water supply 24 hours a day in Algiers, even. Um, And look how that has transformed across the country. Massive investment. Um, Look at the road system. You know, the east-west motorway, there may be problems about it, but as a road, it's pretty damn useful. Um, and th- these are all things that don't just happen. You actually need a system to deliver it. Um, and UNDP has catalogued a whole series of very positive developments in Algeria. Um, I'm in danger of using my 45 minutes, aren't I? Yes, I'd better hurry up. How has Algeria coped with its oil price shock? Well, It's about the only major oil and gas producer in the Middle East that has not had an economic shock since 2014. I think Algeria started very slowly in its response. It's done some things which are against traditional free market economics. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of Western governments think that they are being attacked and that their exports are being kept out of Algeria. I think it's intended much more as an assault on Algerian soi-disant businessmen who actually get their cut through uh, imports rather than through the productive economy in Algeria. I, as I mentioned, I have talked at length to some future prime ministers before they ever became prime ministers, and I say I think that's the intention with, with quite a degree of certainty, to put it no more explicitly than that. Um, I think the you know stopping imports of cement definitely hurt the Greek economy. But why does Algeria need to import cement? Uh, and some of the c- simpler steel products as well. There is a, a passion for importation in Algeria, which isn't actually in the Algerian national economy's um, uh, interest. And with a with a market of £42 million, pounds, quite a lot can be achieved simply by focusing on the domestic market and moving away from a a, a, a complete imbalance in favour of importing. Uh, middle of last year, a, another one of those sort of one-liners in the newspaper that actually painted a very big, uh, a, a very clear picture. Um, uh, just under a thousand exporters in Algeria, and twenty-six thousand importers. Well, not a surprise then that the foreign earnings are ninety-five percent from oil and gas. Um, So I think the shock tactic to get the country to stop importing, to start producing for its own market, and explicitly only much later to really export, um, I think there's something in that, uh, even if it's not conventional free market um, economics. Um, The extent of the opportunity let me just give a list and not any detail. Agriculture, tourism, uh, mining. Um, 73% of the economy of the GDP, which is not oil and gas. I mean it's the, we all think of it, uh, the, the economy de la rente. But actually, it's the oil and gas producer in the Middle East, which is least dependent on oil and gas for GDP. Sixty percent of government income, 95 percent of foreign earnings, but actually only 27 percent of economic activity. There's 73 percent of an economy which is only generating five percent of exports, and only 40 percent of tax income. So there is something there is already quite a big, diversified economy that's just not producing what it needs to produce or to a satisfactory quality. And the answer is, or oh, will import. Um, it doesn't need a vast, vast difference to get that 73% of the economy working to a better level. Um, The young people are the other untapped resource in Algeria. By comparison with all of its neighbours and everybody else in Africa, a highly trained, very well-educated, huge uh, oasis of talent that is becoming more and more uh, uh, digital. Uh, we were regularly getting Algeria in the top 10 uh, responders to things like BB, uh, Br- the British Council's um, uh, Eng- English language uh, material online. Now, a population of 42 million to get into the top 10 globally uh, it, it implies a higher-than-average digital engagement um, and yet we know how low digital engagement across the country is. It just shows what the dynamism and power of that oasis of young people is. Um, I said why I wanted to make this speech. Um, I, will, uh, I will close by just taking us back in history. Um, we've had, we, you know, a lot of our relatives don't know where the place is, but we've had diplomatic relations with Algiers since 15. Eighty-five. Um, uh, Queen Elizabeth I's establishment of the North Africa Trading Company um, reminds us that trade used to be much more geographically <laughs> determined than it is today. Um, I don't know if any of you have read uh, "White Gold," one of these glorious swash, swash, swash no swash, buckling stories. <laughs> Of the corsairs and what happened to uh, young boys on Cornish fish, fishing vessels. Well, uh, it's a very good, very good story. Uh, I, I, I ought, somebody ought to buy up the, uh, the, the television and film rights. I think um, this guy was uh, nabbed by the corsairs on his way to Italy, and in those days to get to Italy you had to go past Algeria. Um, you know, we've lost that sort of geographical prioritisation. Um, It's the 10th biggest country in the world, which to me matters more than being the biggest in Africa. Um, Everybody here would be able to name at least eight of the other biggest countries in the world. Um, Ninth is Kazakhstan, by the way, which I think might be the tricky one. But the other eight you'll all get. You'll even put them in the right order. But Algeria, 10th, 10th, massive. And the second biggest Arabic-speaking population in in the world. There's only Egypt that's bigger, um, and historically, it's been the UK's second biggest source of imported crude oil and LNG. Um, I'd like to leave you with um, a sentence which, in some, if you sort of mix it around slightly, you would think could not exist. It has the words Algiers, London, and closest in it. Now, the the general assumption is that. Algiers and London is distant, doesn't know each other, in uh, 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 very inadequately developed relationships. So you could, London, Algiers and distant, I think you could get votes for very easily. London, Algiers and closest, less easy. But geographically true that Algiers is the closest non-European capital city to London. you only have to fly over one other country to get from London to Algiers. And in comparison with the four-hour flight to Cairo or the seven-hour flight to Dubai, um, even on British Airways, it's uh, only just over two and a quarter hours. You know, this is a close country w- which with huge, huge potential, going on a very difficult course in a very difficult uh, region, uh, And actually, since the Cameron visit and before, the wish to improve and increase the relationship with the UK um, is something that actually makes it one of the best uh, jobs for a British ambassador anywhere in the world. Thank you very much.